announcement that uh, failed uh, that I failed to get in the bulletin. Uh, ladies, there will be uh, a couple of gatherings, four gatherings to be exact, this summer. We are calling them Super Summer Salad Stories. Summer Salad Stories. We did it like that so you could remember all of those S's, um, like I did. They will be the first two Mondays in June and the first two Mondays in July. Uh, on those evenings, and they will meet at our house. If you would like more information about that, you can talk to uh, my wife, Rebecca, who is here down front. Um, she she will give you more information, but uh, those for the ladies, the first two Mondays of June and July, uh, first two Monday evenings will be at our house. that sound good? Perfect. Awesome. All right. We are starting a new series today, a new sermon series. And I want to begin by asking uh, this question, what is community? Right, the word community, uh, it's probably a word that maybe, well for some it might foster a little bit of pain for lack of it, for others uh, a warm sense of, ah yes, that's what I'm looking for. Um, I remember a, a preacher a couple of years ago uh, was talking about turning on the weather channel one day to uh, check his local forecast. And uh, some weather event, tropical storm, hurricane, something had happened, some big weather event. And so uh, they were live reporting from all these different locations. And the main anchor said, uh, it's days like today that the weather channel becomes a community. And Brian, the guy telling the story, was like, yeah, no, I was really just looking for my local on the 8s. Uh, you know, like community, I'm not sure the Weather Channel garners community status. But what is community? What is it? What is it not? Um, if you if you read kind of underneath most of, if you read through social media feeds, so Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, etc., like if you if you look underneath most of what people are saying, uh we're really casting about for for two things, right? And when you see the pictures people post or the words people post, what they share, really what we're looking for, what we're casting about is identity, right? Who am I? Uh, and community. Who are we? Or better yet, who do I belong to? So we're always trying to answer, at least most of us, maybe there's the few very confident people who've already got those things figured out, but if you're subhuman like the rest of us, there's really two questions you're trying to answer most of the time. It's, who am I? And who do I belong with? Or who do I belong to? That identity and community question. Uh, and so we could, we could say this, right? A, a community is... A, very, a group of people bound together by something they have in common, right? Every community has its, its values, right? Those ideals and principles that shape it, uh, that, that create boundaries around it. So whether that's running or politics, right? We are, we are usually looking for a community, a group to bind us together. Right, this idea that somewhere out there is a group of people that I, that get me and I get them and we belong together. And so what we're gonna do starting today is we're gonna look, uh, starting, we're gonna use the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, and we're gonna explore this idea of community, particularly what does the Christian community look like? 
Right? If you, uh, and this continues to be true today, if you ask most people about Jesus, they feel pretty good about Jesus, but if you mention the church, they don't feel so keen about that. Right? The idea of these, why, why is there such a difference between Jesus and the people who were gathered around Jesus? Right? This idea of a Christian community. We're going to explore that, right? We're going to begin to unpack some of those issues and answer some of those questions. And we're going to do it using this first letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, so we have, we have two letters. If you're curious about how Bible books get their names, we have two letters Corinth. The first one is called 1 Corinthians. It's that easy. The second one is called... Second Corinthians. We're going to look at the first, alright? Paul started this church in this city of Corinth about A.D. 50. Uh, you can read about that in Acts chapter 18. You can read the story about the founding of this church. And he was there, this, uh, this man named Paul, for about a year. Not long after that, Paul settles in a city called Ephesus, and he's there for about three years. And it's while Paul is there in Ephesus that he gets word from Corinth that things are not well. The church community is actually beginning to pull itself apart. And there are several issues that he has to address. And so he does so in this letter. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this letter to address this young, vibrant church that has lots of issues. Right? And so, not only is it God's word to Corinth, but it's also God's word to us. Some of the same issues that plagued Corinth plague us. And so as we walk our way through this, we're going to begin to look at questions like, what is our community, our church, built on? What, what is it that binds us together? What are the values that give shape to our lives and boundary our community um, these are the things that we're going to unpack as we walk through 1 Corinthians. But before we do that, let's see what Paul says at the very beginning. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you want to use one of the Bibles uh, there in the row, uh, it should be on page 952. I'm going to be reading chapter 1. That's the, the big number. I'm going to be reading chapter 1. Verses 1 through 9. So the verse numbers are the little small numbers right uh, in the superscript there. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. Let's give attention to God's Word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. The grass withers, flowers, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, as we embark on this journey through 1 Corinthians, Holy Spirit, I pray, we pray that you would use these words to sharpen us, uh, to clarify for us what it means to be your people, to remind us of the grace that we have been given. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be drawn again and again and again back to you. Back to your cross. Back to your empty tomb. And back to your heavenly reign. Would you shape us with your gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be better, that we would be truly Christian community, that we would learn what it means to love one another truly, really, deeply, as we learn what it means to love you truly, really, and deeply. So God, would you use your word to call in your people, to gather us together, and to send us out. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if, if you've had the pleasure in recent months of traveling I-65 north, uh, then you are very well aware of these orange signs alerting you to major frustration on the road ahead. Signs like uh, uneven lanes, road construction next 652 miles, right? Please, for the love, get off your cell phone so you don't make it worse. Those sorts of signs, right? Um, I want to say right at the very beginning, I kind of want to put a sign up and say that that 1 Corinthians might be, probably is, the most difficult letter of the New Testament. The church in Corinth was very troubled. uh, And Paul had some very hard things that he needed to say to them. And so, I even... uh, this began to come to mind to preach through 1 Corinthians um, last year. Uh, and as I read 1 Corinthians, I was like, no way. I am not going to preach through that book, right? Uh, but it came to mind again after Exodus. By the way, if you just want a little bit of insight into my preacher brain, typically when it, when it comes to uh, to what books we're gonna, I'm going to preach or go through, I have just a, a chart on my in my office. And what I do is I put my hand over my eyes and I get a dart... And I just, I'm just kidding, I don't do that. Um, we believe that all of God's Word is for God's people. And we want to learn from the whole counsel of the Scriptures. And so, typically, I will go New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. That's what we've done. We just finished in Exodus. But also, there are different kinds of literature in the Bible. So if I've just done a story like Exodus, then I want to approach something like a letter, something instructional like 1 Corinthians. So that slot kind of opened up, and I felt like God once again was saying, hey, you going to do it this time or what? So, we're going to go through 1 Corinthians, but I want you to know that there are going to be some Sundays, this is going to be painful, and it's going to sound like scolding. 
And in some ways, it kind of is. So it's important that we know that's coming, um, particularly because Paul says some, says some things right here at the very beginning of the letter that are going to help us get through the scolding later. Okay, he's got some hard things to say before we get into those hard things. He says some beautifully encouraging things right here at the beginning. Here's what we're going to see, right? God and his good news are the foundation and fuel of his church. The foundation and the formation of his church, right? This thing that we call church, we get that from God. That's not something we came up with. It's not something we invent. But when we do church, we do it from God and for God. So God's good news is the foundation and formation of his church. And we're going to unpack this in three ways today. First, we're going to see how God changes the way we understand ourselves. God changes the way we understand community. And God changes the way that we understand our story. So, identity community story. Those are the three things that God, if we are in Christ, they begin, God changes the way that we understand those or see those. And it's what, it's what founds and makes true Christian community. So, He's the one who builds it. He's the one who maintains it. How does God change the way we understand ourselves? Look at, uh, look at how Paul understands himself in verse one. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle. An apostle. One who is sent out, an official messenger. An apostle of Christ Jesus. So Paul is an official emissary, an official messenger of Jesus Christ himself. That's kind of a big deal, right? This is, uh, this is a position of great authority. Paul is saying that when he speaks, he speaks for Jesus. Now that's going to matter later on because Paul has to defend his authority against some other people, right? And there's nobody, there, there are no more apostles left. There were only 12 of them, uh, the, the 11 disciples who followed Jesus and then Paul. And they were the foundation of the church. And after they died, there was nobody, there were no other apostles. Everyone, including me, every pastor or elder who teaches or shepherds the church does so with an authority derived from Jesus and the apostles. All right? So there are no more apostles. When you see the church sign that says, brother, pastor, so-and-so is apostle, you know, he's not. Okay? That was, that, that was a limited group of people in, uh, in the New Testament. They wrote the New Testament. Okay? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. That means Paul did not choose this job. It was chosen for him by God. There was, there were not apostle tryouts, right? There was not like a, there wasn't like an apostle job board. Paul entered in his resume and he beat out everybody else. No, if you're going to be an official messenger of the king, the king is the one who chooses you. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I represent him and I was chosen by him, right? God chose me to be an apostle. This was not something I wanted for myself. If you need proof of that, book of Acts chapter nine, you can read about Paul's story how he was actually persecuting the church, right? He wanted to destroy the church, and then God literally knocks him off his horse and blinds him. 
reorients his life, gives him a new identity and a new story. And now the one who wanted to destroy the church is tasked to build the church. It's a beautiful thing, God's grace, and what it does to a person. So Paul's life, what Paul is saying, what's wrapped up in all those, in that phrase, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, is this truth. That Paul's life has been turned upside down. Or probably truer, Paul's life has been turned right side up. His whole life has been redefined by God and given new meaning. In other words, Paul is who he is because of what God has done in his life. Now that's Paul. What about the rest of us? Let's see what he says in verse 2. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, Church. When I say that word, church, what words come to mind in your brain? Don't say them out loud. Um, what words come to mind when I say church? The word, uh, the word where, that we get church from is the Greek word ekklesia. It means a gathering, an assembly, a group of people who've gathered together. Isn't that a very ordinary word? A church is a gathering of people for a specific purpose. So, church is not a place, church is not a program, church is a people who are gathered together. And here we learn that this gathering is of God, meaning it belongs to Him. This is God's gathering. It is His assembly. So, like Paul and his apostleship, a church receives its identity from God. And not from anything or anyone else. So, one way to think about this, one way we can apply this, is whatever those, whatever those words are that, that formulate your idea of church, right? This is my church, right? And all the reasons you love it or maybe don't. I want you to begin to sift through those with God as the framework, right? With God as the sieve, so to speak, right? He is the one who determines what church is. He gives it, to, it its identity, all right? So whatever, whatever your past expectations may be of church, let's begin to reformulate them around what God says church is. What does it look like? He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a, there's a church word, sanctified. Here's what it means. It means to be made holy, to be set apart. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart. So, illustration, uh, all of our boys have their own hammers. The reason... They, and they're all identical, they're all cheap, we just picked them up at the hardware store. The reason they have their own hammers is so they don't mess with my hammer. Because I have a nice hammer. It was given to me by my brother, it is a good quality hammer. And it got left in the yard. And so, in order to sanctify my hammer, we gave the boys their own common hammers. Now they can pound to their heart's delight, and my hammer can remain holy for me, right? So that's what it means to, to be set apart, right? Something that is taken from common use and set apart for a specific special purpose by its owner. This church is sanctified. It is made holy. Now, in the biblical sense, 
Holy means to reflect God's character. It means to be godly. And what Paul says is that these people are made holy. Now, if you're familiar at all with the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that these people do not look godly, right? That the issues Paul is addressing, things like selfishness, division, uh, sexual immorality, uh, not understanding what worship is supposed to look like, having a wrong idea about the resurrection, all of these things that we're going to get to, they show that these people don't understand their holiness. And yet, Paul still calls them holy. Why? He says they are made holy, declared holy, in Christ Jesus. Now, in Christ Jesus, that's a big phrase. It has lots of deep and complex meanings. We've actually been talking about that in adult Sunday school for the past several weeks. I can recommend some good books. But we'll summarize it this way. Because these people are tied to Jesus, spiritually connected to Jesus, then Jesus' life, everything that can be said about Jesus applies to them. Isn't that crazy? Um, have you ever, have you ever needed somebody's good credentials to get in the door somewhere? Or maybe, uh, not, not many of us are really important people, but, Maybe you've had to vouch for somebody, right? Somebody's come to you and said, hey, can you tell me about so-and-so? I don't know a whole lot about them. You want to you wanna be careful, right? Because, like, okay, do I want to speak for that person? Can I vouch for them? Do I know their character? When Paul says that these people are made holy in Jesus, he's saying that Jesus speaks for these people, that what can be said about Jesus is said of them. So that's true of you. If you are in Christ, in one sense... You are holy. You are set apart for God. Okay? That's, that's good news. So, here's what this, here's what this means. These people are united to Jesus. Everything Jesus has done, His perfect life is applied to them. So we can be holy in Christ. That means your position before God is secure. You don't have to earn your way onto the team. Jesus has done it for you. Jesus has worked for you. Jesus has gotten access for you. He speaks for you. In other words, the church is who she is because of what God has done. Not because of what she does. That's an incredibly freeing prospect. That you actually derive your identity, that we get our identity together from what God has done. So, I would apply it this way. Where does your self-understanding come from? How do you... When, when you ask the question, who am I, where do you get the answer from? Do you search deep within... Right? What you have to say about yourself? Kind of a proud, I am who I am. Right? Do you define yourself by your family history, your past circumstances, what's happened to you? That is who I am. So, so now your identity is your response to your past. Do you answer the who am I question with the roles that you hold in life? I'm a pastor. I'm a father. I'm a friend. 
Is that how you define your identity? All of these identities are built on me, on my actions, on my responses. Uh, My sons are getting old enough to recognize, see that I have a a tattoo on my shoulder blade. Uh, And in fact, one of them has begun saying, when he gets old enough, he's going to get a tattoo, Um, which is a whole different conversation. But... Just a little bit of backstory. So there, there are two Chinese characters. Yep. Our five-year-old, it's his first day in church. He's making his mom pay for it. Um, so there's two Chinese characters on my shoulder blade, and I'm about 98% sure that they, they mean strength. Now, looking at me, you can tell that I'm not a, a physically strong person, right? I'm not... A gym guy, not a muscle muscle guy. I got that tattoo because it was a response to my dysfunctional past, right? That because my family was a wreck and I came out of that wreck, I was very I was very proud of my strength. And so I got a tattoo so I could say that about myself, that I'm a strong person. But the real truth of the matter is I got the tattoo to impress a girl. So even though that was my stated reason, my real reason, in fact, revealed that I'm not a strong person at all. In fact, that I'm a slave to whatever people think of me, that I'm a slave to their approval of me. And I emblazoned that slavery in permanent ink on my shoulder blade. But here's the beautiful thing about what Jesus does in the gospel. Whatever we thought to be true about ourselves... He comes along and He gives us a new identity. He says, you're no longer a slave, you're a son. So whatever marks you've emblazoned on your body, or whatever marks you carry around in the depths of your soul, those do not define you. What defines you is the mark that Jesus bears on His hand, the wound He carries in His side. This is the identity we have now. We have the identity of a son or a daughter, because of what Christ has accomplished at His cross. That identity rewrites the story. That identity redefines community. That is how God changes the way that we understand ourselves. So how does that identity, what does that mean for us as a community? How does God change the way we understand community? Look again at verse 2. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, so made holy, declared holy, called to be saints. That that word saints is the same word for sanctified. It means holy ones, people who are set apart. All right, so there's a there's a difference here. And the first thing we ought to say, you've probably heard before, but Roman Catholicism is wrong here. Saints are not super holy people who have done miracles. The word saint in the Bible is applied to garden variety Christians. Congratulations, if you're in Christ, you're a saint. We can talk about Saint Neil, Saint Zach, Saint Sharon. Feels a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? But that word saint, it means to be set apart. So there's a, there's a difference, right? There's a difference in what Paul is saying. On the one hand, he says, you are holy in Christ, sanctified. But then he says, you are called to be holy. So there's a, 
in, in the first case, we're seen as holy because of Christ. This comes to us as a gift. It comes from God's grace. Uh, it's our position before him that we cannot earn. But then Paul says we are also to pursue holiness. We are holy and yet called to be holy. Okay? And that's confusing. I would put it like this. Paul is not saying that you have to earn your spot on the team. He's saying, you're on the team, now play like it. You're on the team, you are holy, now play like it. Pursue holiness, live holy. And the problem is that the Corinthians weren't playing like they were on the team. They had a holiness problem. Their lives were not demonstrating that God's uh, they, their lives were not demonstrating God's grace to them. And so what Paul is telling us is that how we live really does matter. Because we have received amazing grace that ought to change the way we live with each other, the way we do community. And it ought to change the way we live towards the world around us the way that our community is perceived. And that's what the rest of this letter is all about. So we won't apply it a whole lot here. But suffice to say that that Jesus' gospel changes the way we understand life together, community. Okay? Then he says this, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Communities, quote-unquote, can be built on lots of things. Uh, Communities can be built on a place. Maplesville is a distinct community. It has its own ethos, right? And a really great Mexican restaurant. Okay? Um, Communities are often built around a hobby. Running, taekwondo, fishing, hunting, right? Uh, Alabama football. We build communities off all sorts of different things, right? Gatherings of people bound together around this thing or this ideology. But this community, true Christian community, is built around those... It's not built around those. True Christian community is all those who call upon the Lord Jesus. So Paul says... You're called to be saints together with everybody else, everywhere else who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, to call on someone's name is religious language. It means to call out for help, to call out for protection, to call out for provision. It's what the Corinthians would have been very used to doing. Corinth was a very religious city. It had all manner of temples. You could worship Aphrodite. You could worship Poseidon. You could worship Demeter. You also had to worship the Roman government, right? You had to worship Caesar. That was part of the cult. And all of those things, that was just a part of civic life, was you called upon different gods for different things, But Paul says something has changed about this community. No longer do you call on Aphrodite, you just call on Jesus. No longer do you cry out to Poseidon, you call out to Jesus. No longer do you call out to Caesar, you call out to Jesus. It's a matter of who you trust. And so a Christian community is defined by the God that it worships, by the one that it trusts. It's defined by calling on Jesus. This is where unity comes from. True unity is 
built around Jesus. It's not built around political affiliation. It's not even necessarily built around a shared ethic. It's not built around my skin color or my economic class. See, those are the things that culturally, worldly, we build communities around, right? We build affiliation with um, other 20-somethings who are starting out in life. Like, these are the people who get me. This is our community, right? But Paul says that Christian community is not built on any of those things. It's built on Jesus because we worship Jesus together. And so true community is rooted in calling out to Jesus Paul says, you once called out to Aphrodite, Poseidon, or Caesar, but now you call upon the true God, the true King, Jesus Christ. If this is true, then this means the only lasting community, the only community that will still exist when all the others have faded away or buried in the dust, will be the church, the community defined by King Jesus. And so, as we work our way through this letter, I want you and I to really explore that in our hearts. Am I rooting myself in Christ? Is that how I define community? Am I defining church the way Jesus would define church? Paul says, this is who you are. These are, these are very hopeful words. This is who you are. So God changes the way we understand ourselves. He changes the way we understand community. And as he does that, he changes the way we understand our stories. Now, usually I feature as the main actor in my story, right? I mean, I'm the center of the universe. Uh, I approach every day with my past, my present perspective, and my future goals, right? This is where I come from. This is how that's, 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 that's who it's made me to be right now. And this is where I'm going. This is what I want to get accomplished. That's my story. But the gospel changes my story. It changes my story by placing it into a much larger story. In fact, it changes my story by removing me as the actor, as the main focal point, and putting God at the center. Look at what he says in verse 4. Let's see how God's story changes my past. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So what this says is that the past rests in God's grace and in his gifting. It's interesting that when Paul writes to them, he doesn't say, man, I just want to thank you guys for being so great. I just want to thank you guys for being super talented, just showing up, being great people. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, no, I thank my God for you. And then what does he say? I thank my God for you because you're really great people. I thank my God for you because you just showed up. No, he says, I thank my God for you because of his grace at work in you. Paul is radically God-centered. And so his community is radically God-centered. Our past, our past is, is wrapped up in God's grace. It is what God has done that matters. 
My past rests in God's grace and gifting. Let's keep reading. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. So even the reason that they receive grace is because of Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Now, Paul's going to deal with the speech and knowledge thing later in the letter uh, because they're misusing it. But right here he says, it came from God. God. God is the one who enriched you. He gave you everything that you needed. He gave you all speech, all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So I can see God at work in you. God is confirming his work in you, this testimony, so that you are not lacking in any gift. So... My present rest in God's gifting and preserving. He says, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. So wrapped up in those few verses is my past, my present, and my future. God takes my story and reorients it into his story. He says, grace has saved you. In the past, grace has provided for you in the present, and grace will ensure that you get home. He is the foundation, right? He will ensure that when you appear before the judgment throne, the verdict will be blameless. How good is that? When was the last time you did an evaluation uh, and came away with blameless, right? And yet that is the story that God is writing in your life. That is the story that God is writing in the life of the church. My past rests in God's grace and gifting. My present rests in God's preserving of me. And my future rests in Jesus' appearing when Jesus returns. So, how do we apply that? I want you tomorrow, even this afternoon, I want you to approach life with God's story as your framework. So you have to make a conscious effort to remove yourself from center stage. And instead of saying, all right, what do I want to accomplish today? What are my goals? Asking the question, what are God's goals for me? What, what, would, what would bring God the most glory today? Holy Spirit, help me to walk with you today. Right? reorienting the way that we see our story. Um, I didn't ask for her permission to share this, so it may be really embarrassing to her. But So if you go on Jennifer Vinson's Facebook uh, profile, her page, right, the part where it says what your job is, do you know what Jennifer says? Molding souls for eternity, right? Now, Jennifer could have written homeschool mom. And that would have been true. But she took this idea of being a homeschool mom and she viewed it in light of God's story. And she says, I'm, I'm more than a homeschool mom. I'm molding souls for eternity. Now, ultimately, that is God's job. And yet, 
in doing that, I don't even know that she consciously did it this way, but in doing that, Jennifer has a self-understanding that sees God's story as the main story. It's not about what she's doing for her kids. It's about what God is doing in the long run and coming into that and being brought into that story and seeing your life as part of that story. Is that what you do? Is that how you see your life? Are you, do you see yourself as a part of God's greater story of creation and redemption and consummation, right? That God is the one who saves and preserves and will bring us home. Are you a part of that story? Verse 9 is really the, uh, the perfect summary verse for everything that we've said. As Paul uh, begins to correct the church, he, he leaves them with one uh, encouraging thought. God is faithful. God is faithful. He is, he is trustworthy. He is true. Even when we prove not to be, He is true. He is trustworthy. He is the faithful one. Our identity, our story rooted not in my faithfulness to Him, but in His faithfulness to Himself. How about that? His faithfulness, uh, His faithfulness to keep His promises. Salvation and community are His idea and the products of His gracious intervention in my life. God is faithful by whom you were called. He is the one who calls, invites us, summons us even, right? This is, this is why we start our worship service with a call to worship. Did you know that you actually didn't gather here of your own initiative this morning? We're not here because we thought it would be a good idea. We're here because God calls us to worship. He is the one who invites us. He is the one who summons us. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship, the partnership, the koinonia, literally the participation of His Son. God is faithful by whom you were called into the participation of His Son. Your life has been grafted into Jesus' life. He is our Lord. He is our King. Did you notice... How many times Paul said Jesus Christ? Nine. Almost one, well, average out, one per verse. Paul is so radically Christ-centered that he can't help but just keep repeating the name of Jesus over and over again. Christian community is rooted in the work of Jesus. It's an outflowing of the work of Jesus. We're not doing anything new here. We are continuing the work that Jesus began. And we're doing it with Jesus' power. So that all the glory goes to Jesus. Right? So what is church? What is true community? It is a gathering of people who have been invited, summoned really, into the participation of Jesus. It's all of grace, and we can give thanks to God for that. If you're outside of Christ, we invite you to Him. It's hard to be in community. In fact, it's impossible to be in community if you're not in Christ. You might have shared affinity with lots of different people, 
But what Paul tells us is that if we want to know what it means to belong, we first have to belong to Him, even as we work out what it means to belong to each other. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank You for Your kindness. Lord, for Your faithfulness. That You are trustworthy. That You are so committed to Your own promises. You are so committed to Your own worth and glory. That even as You redeem us and restore us and forgive us and bind us together, You continue to be at work in us. God, would You bless our time in this letter. May it be profitable, fruitful for us, that we may be the sort of people, the kind of community that is shaped by the good news. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.